The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. So, <laughs> thank you for the break. It was kind of getting long. I'm sorry about that. It's hard for me to know, like, how many people are going to be here, how long things are going to take, that kind of stuff. So, I appreciate your uh, hanging in there. We'll make the next section short. No, actually, I'll keep you here. No lunch break. <laughs> Like the gatekeeper, I'll keep you in. <laughs> okay. So kind of exploring this idea of mindfulness. You know what, Randy, can we turn up the volume a little bit? I feel like I'm straining my voice to speak a little loud. Can we just make it it's, so it's a little more relaxing for me to speak just a tiny bit louder? There we go. This feels a little bit better for me. Otherwise, I'm, is it better for you guys too? Okay. I felt like I was yelling and it just wasn't quite right. Okay, thank you. So in exploring mindfulness, we did a guided meditation, and then we exported all these similes. So now let's look at a text that's uh, in the Buddhist scriptures. Excuse me, I'm not hearing the uh, broadcast. So it's not being amplified at all? You can't uh, hear it? Can you... uh, it's, It's not in your ear? It's not, sir, it's not in your ear. No, 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 it's not, you have to put it in your ear. (laughs) Oh, okay. There we go. We can wait. Nope, I didn't say anything. I'm just, uh, we're just waiting so that all of us can participate. There, does that seem like that works now? Okay, great. There's no reason why we can't accommodate everybody. So, as I said, we did a meditation, we looked at some imagery, so now let's look at a text. But I am not going to hand out this big text. We're just going to look at pieces of it, and we're going to look at it um, kind of more, uh, yeah, I'll just say this, with little pieces of it. So the key text that has been the most influential about mindfulness, I've mentioned it, it's called the, in Pali, we call it the Satipatthana Sutta. Sati is the Pali word for mindful, and then patana. So there are different uh, uh, ways to understand this. And um, it's interesting that in Eng- the English translations, they were translating it the first way before, uh, one way, and then now, like, you know, maybe like 20, 30, 40 years later, we're translating it differently. So Patana, we're now going to, we're, uh, and I, I agree with this, we understand it as like establishing, the establishment of. So sati, sati patana is like the establishment of mindfulness. You could see this word on the flip side of the handout that I um, gave you is I'm um, talking about this, uh, the sati patana sutta. We often, um, when we're, um, establishment of mindfulness is quite a mouthful. So sometimes people just say satipatthana, but that only makes sense if you're familiar with it, right? So 
But Randy, I feel like I'm doing a little bit of yelling again. Can we just, I'm not, maybe my microphone is slipping or something. Yeah, I don't want to be yelling because it's not nice for you guys. It's not nice for me either. There we go. I think my microphone just slips. There we go. So if you look at this handout, there's like different elements of the Satipatthana Sutta. First is what, um, oh, maybe before we, or I'll I'll do this now. I'm um, influenced by this book. It's called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. It's uh, written by Bhikkhu Analyo. This was his PhD dissertation, which he turned into a, um, you know, a book. So it's very kind of scholarly, lots and lots of footnotes. It's not something that you would read unless you really kind of wanted a more academic, scholarly understanding of this. But it's impressive. He did a beautiful job. He's just an amazing, he's an amazing guy. He's taught here a number of times. He comes to our retreat center and teaches. And he um, often, um, he's very skilled at teaching kind of the academic things as well as how to practice. He's a very, very serious practitioner. He's um, a monk. Maybe I should say that too. So his life is uh, dedicated to practice. Maybe I'll say one more thing. This book came out, I think, in 2003. And since then, he has a second book. And I'll just introduce this idea briefly. So I'm talking about the suttas, the scriptures of this Buddhist tradition. Here, right at IMC, we're in Theravada Buddhism. You may know Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, right? There's other types of Buddhism. Here, we're influenced, inspired by Theravada. Just early Buddhism, which, you know, are um, the scriptures we believe, you know, come from the time of the Buddha, are the oldest. I think all all Buddhists would agree that they are the oldest ones. But a fascinating thing has happened in the past five or ten years is that there's been a lot of scholarship that Theravada Buddhism is not the only type of Buddhism that was so old from the time of the Buddha or near the time of the Buddha. Theravada is the only one that exists today and is still practiced. It's practiced in Burma and Thailand and the United States. But there were other ones too. There were other schools besides just Theravada. And they had their own version of these scriptures that are really, really similar but a little bit different. And so it's really fascinating. So what's happened in the last five or ten years is this guy, Bhikkhu Analyo, he's compared what are these other ancient um, scriptures that um, are preserved in Chinese. I should, this gets a little confusing. They were first written down in Sanskrit, then got translated into Chinese, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred years later. The Sanskrit ones got lost, and so now all we have are the Chinese. But what, what's interesting about this is that when we are reading these, for example, these similes or anything else, and we don't quite understand it when we 
even if we're poly scholars, we're like, hmm, I'm not quite sure what is meant here. What can we look at to try to figure it out? What can we use to try to help us understand? If, we, if it's not clear or if there's lots of different interpretations. So historically, there's an, have been a number of ways. One, you can look at your practice. Maybe your own meditation experiences could help you interpret it. Two, you can look at what was written a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, which is still a thousand years, but it's closer than we are. So if there were some commentaries that were written a thousand years afterwards. They would say, okay, what do those texts have to say? That's a second uh, way to understand it. Now what's happened in the past five or ten years, a third way to understand it is to say, oh, let's go look at these other texts that are preserved in Chinese. Do they say the same thing? Maybe there's something in there that can give us a clue about what these things mean. So this is so our understanding of kind of what these texts are is just evolving. Just recently, you know, like this, probably this month, something is getting published about this. It's really kind of the um, the edge of kind of like academic study. And this guy, Bhikkhu Inolio, he studies this. And what he's doing is he's like um, teaching mindfulness. He's teaching um, how to practice based on what is common, what is clear about all these uh, scriptures, instead of just saying, okay, Theravada Buddhism is the best, it's the one that we're trained in. He's saying, well, you know, these guys over here are looking at this, and these guys over here have this, and it seems like what they all agree on is that. Therefore, we're going to practice that. We're, it doesn't mean it's the only way to do it, but it's, a, I think, a really interesting thing that's happening right now. So I say this. I think Bikuanalio is coming to IRC, uh, the retreat center that's associated here. I think he's coming in the spring. I'm not sure. But he comes to Spirit Rock, too. So that was a long way of saying, getting back to this handout, the first element of the Satipatthana Sutta is what I'm just calling the direct path. And he's calling Satipatthana the direct path to realization, this, the subtitle of this book. The Satipatthana Sutta, there's a little section that says, this is the direct path to essentially awakening. So the, what's about to follow in the scripture is the direct path, like the one way how to get there. Some people like to say it's the only way, but not any scholar that I know or practitioner will say it's the only way. They're saying it's one way that it's going. Eventually it'll go the here. It's not, it won't go the another way. It, and it can be a direct path. But for our purposes, also, the second element there is a definition. Okay, a definition. What, what maybe they're going to talk about mindfulness here. And then you'll see in that section below there, I said, well, we'll get to what is the definition. But before we get there, we kind of have to understand a little bit more about the structure of this Satipatthana Sutta. That is, there is um, a section on mindfulness of the body, which has six practices. We'll go into the, these details later. Mindfulness of feelings, 
mindfulness of the mind and mindfulness of dhammas. And then there's this repetition of direct path and then this prediction. So one thing about the sutta is it's very like systematic, it's very uh, stylized, it's very um, organized. It's not like a recording, maybe it is, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a recording of just somebody sitting down and talking. It has, you know, it's very structured. Because you'll notice here also, like for number three, is mindfulness of the body, the six practices, plus the refrain six times. We'll talk about what the refrain is in a moment. But you can think of it, a refrain is like the chorus in a song. Kind of, that's like the thing that gets repeated and is kind of like the meat of what the song is about. And often the chorus is what you remember in a song. So this Satipatthana Sutta has this refrain a total of 13 times. So if the same thing is repeated 13 times, it tends to like stick in your mind and you tend to think that it's important. So before um, we um, get there, I want to talk about the definition of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. I mean, you'll see when we look at this, it's not it's not like the type of definition that we're used to in our um, college textbooks or some lecture that's given or anything that it's doesn't it's for our our kind of contemporary western view it's a little bit unsatisfying it's not as clear perhaps so the definition is um and i did this with a um i put slashes between um the different elements here i'll explain um because this gets repeated with substituting the different words. So I'll read this out loud. Here, with regard to the body, a person abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. The same passage appears here with regard to feelings, A person abides, contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. And then we can do it with mind and with dhammas. I put um, dhammas here. uh, This is a Pali word. The Sanskrit word is dharma. It's the same word. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But they, um, it's hard to translate. It has lots of different meanings. And in this particular context, dharmas are, I'm, well, I'm just going to call them phenomena that are categorized according to Buddhist teachings. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Some teachers, when they talk about the Satipatthana Sutta, will use the word mind objects. Sometimes they use the words phenomena. Sometimes they use the word dhamma. Sometimes they... I think maybe those are the the three most common. I'm leaving it um, untranslated here. So this doesn't seem too satisfying with regard to the body. You're diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful. Well, how can, if the definition is in there, how can it be? You know, the definition of mindfulness. If 
if uh, mind, mindful is one of the definitions, right? We just end up in this tautology that's just divine, uh, defining itself. But maybe what's surprising here is that if we look at this, with regard to the body, a person abides contemplating the body. Hmm. This isn't a word that we've used yet this morning, really, right? Contemplating. And yet this is, this is what's in how to establish mindfulness, this idea of contemplating. So contemplating is um, uh, a translation of a word, anupasitis, contemplates, and it means this way, uh, to see, pasiti. Anu is kind of like a uh, repeatedly. So it's like to observe repeatedly or to watch repeatedly or see repeatedly. So repeatedly can mean like bringing your mind back and back, back again. It can also mean like maybe from different uh, perspectives, right? That's a little bit what contemplation is. So I'm not sure contemplation is the best translation because often we associate contemplation with something bigger, more about uh, just um, thinking about what does it mean, you know, kind of going off into meaning. And I don't know, I think all of us have an idea of what contemplation means. Here it means kind of like repeatedly seeing, repeatedly looking, repeatedly watching. Maybe this, uh, we can call it like a repetitive observation or something like this. So, let's see here. But it's not only repeatedly watching or repeatedly observing. There's also all these um, words, all these um, conditions that go along with it. Diligent clearly knowing and mindful and free from desires and discontent. So let's spend just a little bit talking about this diligence. Also, atapi, sometimes uh, also translated as uh, with ardency. So it implies a certain amount of energy or maybe a certain amount of like um, strength or effort, a certain amount, right, to engage like maybe we can even say some intentionality, like to be diligent or to be ardent. If we translate it as ardent, it kind of brings uh, a feeling of warmth, maybe even a little like uh, a passionate or strong enthusiasm or maybe even a little bit of devotion if we um, have that feeling. And so... We could say, like in terms of our practice, this idea of diligence or ardency can be a way that can really support mindfulness, right? We saw this in some of the similes, the idea of the importance of staying with with the object, um, especially when it may be when everybody else is watching a dancer, for example, or, you know, kind of the certain amount of effort that needs to be there, or when the cows may go into the crops. There's a certain amount of energy or commitment or something that's needed. 
So it's this repeated observation, but with also a certain amount of commitment, ardency, diligence. Which can really support us, uh, you know, support that practice of mindfulness when there are difficulties. And of course, this, um, this ardency we can cultivate this uh, commitment to mindfulness is something that can be cultivated and developed. How do we do that? There's a number of different ways. Sometimes there can be a reflection of about why are we meditating? What's the purpose? Is do we have a why? Do we have something that wants to, that's motivating us, inspiring us? Do we want to have less suffering? Do we want to understand ourselves better? Do we want to have more freedom? The Buddhist teachings, of course, are about freedom and the ending of suffering. But all of us may come with our own kind of immediate uh, ideas about it. We may also have some ideas about um, awakening, freedom, enlightenment. But we can reflect on that. That can kind of support having a commitment. We can um, also imagine, like, or remember, how were our lives before we ever started a meditation practice? And we can imagine what, what are the things that them having a meditation practice or even greater mindfulness, how does it enhance our lives? Maybe in very mundane ways, but how does it support us? How does it um, um, enhance our lives? Does anybody else have a comment? Like, how can, uh, what can support having uh, some commitment or energy or effort uh, to have this kind of, to stick with mindfulness practice, this repeated watching? What are some other things that can help with that? Faith. Faith? Do you want to say a little bit more? Or faith in what? Or, here's a microphone. I wasn't prepared to say more. Uh, faith. Um, you know, I guess the word comes to me because I'm, I'm reading this definition that you have, and I make the parallel with my experience of um, dancing ballet at a high level, and it's, it's the same. Like, this definition would apply. And so the commitment of repeatedly watching your body, being aware of your body, um, is there is a faith that by doing this, it will, um, it will support you. Like, I, I don't know how to explain. No, I think that was great, actually. And partly how you're describing it, that faith, I imagine, arises because it supported you in the past. Yeah, so kind of like, oh, yeah, I know. I don't feel like practicing today or whatever it might be. But you know that if you do, that it kind of helps. and Yeah, thank you, Sylvie. Does anybody else have some ideas? What are some things that can support this sense of ardency or diligence? can be towards our practice or general or in general or to for mindfulness in particular. Thank you for running the micro. Here's the microphone for you. Oh. Well, I was just going to say the sangha. Yeah, yeah. The group being with others who are practicing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right. We shouldn't underestimate that kind of the power of uh, coming together as a community, practicing together. Thank you. Thank you. What else can support that? Anything else? Yeah, I think that microphone, yeah, she just put it down there. Oh, there's another one. Okay. So I have a tendency to be more hyper-rational. Um, and so what helped me is knowing the neuroscience behind meditation. And then um, I read that doing progressive muscle relaxation or meditation for um, about 30 days will make an impact on you. And so I just kind of went for that. And I had some very interesting experiences going through that process and being committed to it based on knowing the neuroscience uh, data on it. And then that was like the catalyst to, for me, actually then physically going through experiences to be like, whoa, double down on this. It's working. It's helping you. So, Yeah, right? Sometimes we need a credible source. For some of us, that may be scientific data. Other, what other things do we hold to be credible or authoritative? The Buddha? Maybe something we read in a book, a Dharma teacher, right? A Dharma book. Like, oh, yeah, this makes sense to me. Okay, I'm going to do this. So having something that we hold to be credible or authoritative, kind of saying, do this, try this, practice this, is going to help, even if we don't have our own experiences yet. Yes. I think uh, if we could send a microphone this direction. Does anybody have one? Here we go. Well, for me, it's, it's, it's my direct experience that inspires me. I am so grateful. I am content with my life. And my livelihood is as a tax accountant which is great because I get to deal with crazy people and make them feel better. It's wonderful. <laughs> I have the best livelihood. So, um, but this past season, I made the commitment to be fierce in my practice. I did not let my obligations um, interfere with my meditation, with coming here, and um, just um, being dedicated and I had the best season. I've been doing this 34 years. And this was the easiest season, uh, the best results. It was, it was just incredible. And you would think by taking those hours out that it would make the other hours harder. And it was just such a great experience. And I'm so grateful. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, right? We, we learn, like, oh, yeah, this is supportive. This does make a difference. That can kind of support our commitment to practice in a general. And when mindfulness, kind of this certain amount of energy, this certain amount of effort to just kind of this continuous looking, this repeated observation, right? That does take a certain amount of something. Otherwise, our minds, right? We all have noticed this with meditation. Otherwise, our minds are kind of like off going wherever they go, right? Even though we have the intention to keep them here, off they go, right? Okay, so then um, another element that happens there with regard to the body, a person contemplates the body, diligent, clearly knowing. 
So this brings in kind of the cognitive idea or this little bit maybe more, um, if we could say like maybe diligence and urgency has a little bit of a heart quality. Um, I, we have to stretch a little bit here. And maybe clearly knowing is a little bit more of the mental quality that brings it here. That, um, that uh, repeatedly observing, being watchful, we bring all aspects of ourselves but also um, clearly knowing can be um, interpreted or understood as knowing what we're doing and why. Kind of maybe being mindful is knowing, we saw in the simile, some of the appropriateness of what we're doing, the purpose of what we're doing, to learn more, to remove that arrow, to help the cows not going to the field so that we don't get uh, put in jail, imprisoned. Um, and also just, the under, just this idea of understanding what's really happening. And the more we understand our minds, of course, the more we understand other people, and the more we self-awareness we have, we also can start to see um, some of the common humanity. Like if we have this understanding, this certain amount of knowing what's happening, like, oh yeah, this is, I can see that this is part of the human experience. I can't, perhaps in the beginning of our practice, we can't control it in a way that we thought that we could. We're just like, oh yeah, okay, I see this, I know this. But it also highlights that um, mindfulness can be more than simply being present. When we first teach mindfulness, we emphasize just being present. And that's what the predominant teachings are in the secular setting and when you go in the beginning of kind of the Buddhist teachings also, there's a real emphasis on just being present. And it naturally will lead to greater and greater freedom. But the more as our practice develops, we will just, there's this, this cognitive sense of, oh yeah, okay, this is wholesome, this is unwholesome. This leads to greater freedom, this doesn't lead to greater freedom. I'm going to choose this, not that. There's this kind of knowing um, aspect to the mindfulness practice of this repeated seeing as Sylvie. Can, we, can you give her a... Isn't there an aspect as well of um, like being awake, like in this clearly knowing is that they were like as if my eyes were covered by a veil. I couldn't see everything. And then suddenly I'm seeing clearly um, things I couldn't see. It's fantastic that you say this because this is how like some of the scholars are interpreting the next one, mindful. They're saying that being mindful is that you see, they're like there's, um, when you're mindful of something, there's a certain vividness, there's certain clarity, certain, I don't know. It's hard to explain. But you guys know, right? You have this experience. When you're mindful of something, it's, it's there, and you know that it's there in a certain amount of, I keep on coming this word vividness, maybe in a different, in a, in a certain way. Focus. Thank you. So th- it's um, 
Right? It's a difficult uh, experience uh, to describe, but I think we all have this feeling when we're mindful of um, something versus when we're not mindful, knowing the glass is there, and I'd, when I want to pick it up, but I often, right, when we knock things over, we don't really know that it's there. That's a terrible example. But I, think, I feel like I don't know how to explain this, but I think you all know, right? I don't have the exact words on how to say this. Um, maybe I'll say this. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the translator of most of our text today, whom I think is just fantastic, he uses the expression lucid awareness. So he uses this word lucidity to kind of highlight uh, mindfulness. So we can making it vivid. We have this lucid awareness. Maybe it's in focus. We'll find that our mindfulness sometimes, we can be mindful of things that are fuzzy, but we know that they're fuzzy. So uh, um, I know a few of you have some, uh, your hands are going up. I have a few things to say. Oh, yeah, um, there's a Dharma teacher, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's one of those people who went to Asia and then brought it back. I've practiced with him. Gil has practiced with him. Um, he describes uh, mindfulness in a way that I really like. He says, it's the opposite of absent-mindedness. It's kind of like, you know, you're here and you know that you're here. Something about that. And it also, um, he um, says it also has a quality of receptivity. Like we're, this mindfulness has, we're like, allowing things to arise in our awareness where where it has a we're not like out um, often when we practice we are doing this but um, mindfulness uh, as our practice develops and as we get a little more experience a little more ease a more familiarity where there's less going out there and grabbing the objects and more just being here and allowing the objects to arise, if that makes any sense. So it can be about kind of the, uh, yeah, like how do I describe that? Like the, maybe like how much spaciousness there is in the mind, how much ease there is in the mind, and that goes with this quality of awareness, that things are vivid and lucid right when things are vivid and lucid we don't have to like grab onto them we can just allow they just yeah okay this is how it is maybe i'll pause there does anybody else have a comment or a question about kind of this experience of mindful what it is to be mindful So this word sati, which gets translated as mindful, has a second meaning. And we sometimes uh, see um, teachers bring this up and try to incorporate it in. The second meaning is understood by scholars to be like the first meaning that was happening in the greater Indian society at the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha, very often we see this in the suttas, where he takes a word that has a particular meaning and redefines it for his own purposes. 
sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly. So Sati had this other meeting in, in this greater Indian society, and he tweaked it a little bit for, um, to, and sort of it got tr- translated as mindfulness. I think, yeah, like uh, the first time these texts got tra- translated into English, 1910, um, he used the word mindfulness for Sati, so it has just kind of stuck all this time. So what's the other meaning? Does anybody know? Has anybody heard like a Dharma talk where they say what sati means, this other meaning? Maybe I'll... S- I'm sorry, what? No, not heart. Yeah, that's uh, a nice uh, uh, idea though, right? And I could see where you would get that uh, without going in a long explanation. Thank you, but... Uh, not. Yes? I'm sorry? Truth? Uh, no, uh, mindful is sati. I'm just saying like the definition of sati, but the thing about there. Uh, bias or fear? Uh, not quite. Maybe I shouldn't just have you guys, uh, like I have one word in my mind, and <laughs> just say you <laughs> Memory. To remember. Sati is about memory. And part of the reason why I bring this up is because just like last week I was... Uh, taking a course, an online course on Buddhist studies, and these professors were saying that sati is all about memory, memory, memory. It doesn't really mean mindfulness. I thought, really? That's fascinating. But, uh, you know, some, these weren't Theravada practitioners, that that's the way they're saying. And it's true that sometimes uh, smarti is the Sanskrit word that, this, that is similar to this. And that does mean memory. <laughs> so, um, uh, but if you think about, okay, well, what is memory? Memory is bringing something to mind. And often memories have a certain, like, it's bringing something to mind, right? This uh, vividness, or we can sometimes, they're vivid, and sometimes there can be some clarity about it. So the Buddha um, kind of like hijacked this word and said, okay, we're going to do this intentionally, this bringing to mind intentionally. And part of how to cultivate it is to repeatedly observe with a certain amount of energy and to know that you're doing so. Yeah, so I'll say for this, sati, um, often we can think of it as related to memory as bringing to mind. And some some places in the Buddhist uh, scriptures, sati is still used in that way as memory as somebody who's able to bring to mind something from a long time ago. One possible, another way how these two ideas work together of mindfulness and memory is that if you're mindful, you're more likely to remember. And if something comes up in the mind, but it happened in the past, it's a memory. But if something arises in the mind and it's happening right now, that's mindfulness. So you can see how there's a relationship here between just different ideas or uh, concepts or something being in the mind. And then this last element, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. Kind of in the um, Buddhist context, 
this idea of being free from desires and discontent implies a certain amount of settledness, a certain amount of concentration, a certain amount of collectedness. That is, you're not um, being lost or getting pulled around by with... um, Oh, I want this. I want that. You know that you that there's a there's um, it doesn't have to be complete concentration, but a certain amount of settledness. Maybe I'll just use that word settledness, so that um, you're not so filled with uh, desire, leaning forward, desperately wanting something, or discontent is desperately not wanting something, but enough that that has been softened enough that you can actually be here now with what's actually happening. But often we can't uh, soften our desires or discontent until we have a certain amount of well-being, a certain amount of ease, right? The obvious things, right? If we're starving, we are all, we, it's, it's very difficult to be mindful if we are just are so desperate for food or for water or something like that. That's kind of an extreme example. But it does um, point to the importance of cultivating a sense of ease and well-being, not just meditating, but in our lives. So then it's just easier to practice mindfulness if we're not, um, if we don't have a certain amount of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like a, I kind of, I, this word, desperate, but that's a strong word. But if there isn't a sense of, I really, really need something, we need to have that to be allayed a little bit so that we can um, be mindful. I will say that um, this idea of being settled definitely grows the more mindfulness that we do. In fact, one way to understand concentration is just continuous mindfulness. The more and more you're mindful, that just becomes concentration. And it takes time. We may not be settled right then, but with time we can be. So sometimes in the beginning when we first sit down, right, we all have this, on the cushion we have this experience of uh, not really being settled or content there. So this is the definition of the how to establish mindfulness is this with regard to the body, feelings, or minds, or dhammas, with regard to the body, a person abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. It's a little bit different than what gets taught even here in basic mindfulness and with uh, basic uh, out in the secular setting. But it's not... uh, it doesn't contradict what's being said there. This is just a fuller explanation. Saying mindfulness has some different, has some additional elements to it. But we all begin probably just with this idea of being present with what's actually happening. And then as our practice develops, these other elements naturally often just get added or, or as we progress along the kind of the Buddhist path. Okay, so let's break for lunch. um, I'll stay up here if you have some questions or comments. Otherwise, you can come up and uh, talk to me.
I don't want to keep you guys here waiting uh, too long. It's 12.25. Can we come back at 1.30? So that's an hour and five minutes. Does that seem reasonable? Okay, great. You're, uh, again, you're welcome to come up with questions or comments. Thank you.